Christians are supposed to be Christ-like, just as the name implied from when it was originally used in the first century, right up to our own postmodern world today. It's as simple as WWJD, right? Wrong. Join our show host, teacher, servant leader, and fellow traveler, Steve Russell, as we journey together in learning how lives daily renewed by God's grace and power can embrace Christian living that counts and makes a difference in a broken world. This is Steve Russell, your host for Christian Living Today. We are renewed people making a difference in a broken world. Welcome to this week's show. We're going to do something a little different today. Uh, We usually do every week. Uh, We're going to be looking at an idea proposed by an author named Richard Louvre. I was looking over his book. In fact, I have it here in my hand in the studio called Last Child in the Woods. Uh, Louvre is a columnist for several very popular newspapers. He's made numerous television appearances. But the uh, subtitle of his book, Last Child in the Woods, is called Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. We've all heard of ADD and ADHD and so forth, but nobody really has come up with NDD until uh, until Louvre came up with it, and I think he takes this book and, and really fleshes out his definition in it and, and explains what he means by a nature deficit disorder. In fact, there's an interesting quote in the opening of the book that he picks up from a fourth grader in San Diego. Uh, this fourth grader said, I like to play indoors because that's where all the electrical outlets are. And that's almost self-explanatory. It means that our kids are growing up in a culture where they want to be near an electric outlet for their charging device, for their screen, for whatever video game or social networking thing or whatever they've they've got in mind to do. But they're a long way from outdoors, and they know that outdoors, uh, even though there are amenities for that, such as uh, portable chargers and so forth, they know that outdoors they're liable to experience a, a lack of that electricity that gives life to all their screen games and communications. But today we're going to look at this nature deficit disorder. I'm excited coming on in the uh, later segments of the show to have Chris Mitchell joining us. Chris is the director of the Texas Youth Hunting Program for the Texas Wildlife Association, and uh, we are good friends for many years. And uh, Chris, has, as we have mutually served each other's organizations and things that we do, and uh, I want to for Chris to come on later and talk to us a little bit about how much it uh, matters for kids to get outdoors in a hunting context. But, you know, when I start this show in the first uh, segment, I want to get a couple of things out of the way because there are a lot of people that think, oh, well, you hunters just want to go out and shoot animals and birds, and uh, that's what it sounds like anyway. But if you didn't grow up with a hunting culture, it may be a little bit difficult to understand. But having grown up in northeast Texas, it certainly was a part of my heritage. I tell people that my dad raised me in a small bass boat uh, about 14 feet long with a 10-horse motor on it and uh, behind a brace of bird dogs, typically either English pointers or setters. And uh, to this day, <clears throat> at age 61, I still have a bird dog. In fact, there probably would be less than, than two years of my entire life over the 61 years that I've lived when there wasn't a bird dog in the yard somewhere. So hunting is a, is a part of my heritage. But a lot of people think, well, this is just uh, going out and harming wildlife and so forth. And they really don't have the facts or anywhere near a semblance of the truth. Let me give you some numbers that, that I hopefully will allow you to rethink this matter a little bit. 
Uh, first of all, uh, back in the 1930s, when America was on a war footing, uh, about to be introduced to World War II very abruptly by the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of, uh, of 41, um, we, we know that, um, uh, that those were tough times. We were emerging from, a, from an economic depression as a nation, and so we had war on the one hand, depression on the others, and yet at that time, a number of people who were interested in wildlife in America and its depletion, which uh, was being very rapidly, um, uh, was very rapidly occurring, uh, where we were losing our wildlife, and they came to the United States Congress, despite the needs of of the economy and the and the uh, uh, gearing up for the war, and uh, providing war goods. Even in the late 30s, they came to Congress and said, uh, "We'd like to have a um, we'd like to have a mechanism for funding wildlife restoration and habitat restoration, and see if we can check uh, this decline in the wildlife populations." And as you might expect Congress to do, whether they're in a difficult footing or not, they decided to create a tax. An odd time to to create this tax with all the crises they were facing. But interestingly enough, they decided to tax the very things that the people who came to Congress and asked for the funding, they decided to to tax their very entities. For example, firearms manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers. And what came to be known as the Pittman-Robertson Act was enacted and uh, what this said was a certain amount of tunch, t- tax money on purchases of these kinds of a- items used in hunting and shooting um, and in other outdoor activities would bear this tax. Well, over the years, which uh, now 76 years since Pittman Robertson was enacted, there have been um, uh, well over $12 billion collected. And this money has all gone back into um, education for wildlife conservation, uh, hunter education, shooting sports, and different things like that. You might ask very simply, well, what, what's a concrete difference that it made? Um, t- tell, me some, tell me some real numbers. Well, for example, what we would call today the Department of the Interior back in 1900, um, in, that, in that time over 115 years ago, uh, they actually did a survey of the white-tailed deer population in the continental United States, what we think of today as the 48 states. They did this survey, and they did it by counts, obviously not as scientific as we could do it today, but they did their best, and they come up, came up with the idea in 1900 there were approximately a half million white-tailed deer in the contiguous 48 states. And so that was 1900. You fast-forward to the Pittman-Robertson Act in the late 30s. In 1939, the tax revenues began to come, come in. They began to be spent and allocated after that. And uh, today, 76 years uh, after that survey, if you go out and look at some pretty astounding statistics about the Whitedale t- deer population, uh, it's quite uh, quite inspiring. In fact, in the state of Texas, every year, on the average, there are about 565,000 white-tailed deer harvested during deer season. In other words, what I'm telling you is that just in Texas alone, we actually harvest more white-tailed deer from the wildlife population than the survey said existed 115 years ago. And the white-tailed deer population has surged. Uh, Many of you know that if you've been unfortunate like me. And one of the deer that unfortunately met its demise was uh, against my my car. So uh, we know that they're out there everywhere. 
But uh, those kind of statistics are, are the kind that are just absolutely shocking. Today, the uh, national population would probably be in excess of 35 to 40,000 white-tailed deer. The same thing was true of ducks back in 1901. The waterfowl population was surveyed, and there were just literally very few waterfowl available uh, in 1901. Today, the population's number over 35 million. The Rocky Mountain elk, a lot of people that I know in Texas, since we don't have elk, will go up uh, to the northern states, particularly Colorado, to do some hunting of Rocky Mountain elk. Back then, the population was estimated in 1907 to be about 41,000. Today, that population is well over a million. And you can just go on and on and on. A wild turkey population of 100,000 has grown to 7 million, and so on and so on. And I think the important thing to stress here is that it's not the um, uh, the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It's not uh, the tree huggers and, uh, and, and the people that you would think of typically as green. It's not those people who have contributed the major funding to wildlife restoration. In fact, it is the hunters and shooters because of the equipment they use. Uh, and that has later, the archery was added into that. And then in 1950, uh, following the, um, the Pittman-Robertson Act that President Roosevelt signed into law, President Truman signed in the Sport Fish Act. So today it's known popularly as the Wild, Wildlife Restoration Act. So all the outdoor equipment from hunting to fishing to shooting uh, contributes to this tax base, and it is poured straight back into uh, educational programs and restoration programs and conservation programs that secure our wildlife for generations to come. So that's where the money comes from. And what I, I guess I could say very bluntly to you is were hunting and shooting and outdoor sports to disappear uh, from the American uh, heritage, we might find our, well our wildlife going back into the type of jeopardized situation that the way they, the way they were around the turn of 1900s uh, when the populations were being depleted. So I hope you'll rethink the idea of hunting. Hunting, in fact, is really a conservation tool. Uh, when we have certain hunting seasons throughout the United States, those game laws are not determined by a bunch of people sitting around saying, when would we like to go hunting? Uh, if it were true, we certainly wouldn't start dove season in Texas September the 1st because it's usually well over 100 degrees. We'd find a cooler time. But in fact, scientific research is uh, heavily involved in the setting of seasons and the determining, determining of things such as the length of the seasons, migratory patterns, um, the, um, the breeding patterns and the maturity levels of the wildlife that are being harvested. All these things go into making a hunting season, and, and hunting actually becomes a, a population control method, and it improves the wildlife because uh, some of the wildlife is, is eliminated. And, and I think I can give you an agricultural comparison that will, will ring true for you and you'll understand this. It's the same thing sometimes as overgrazing a pasture. You know, if you have 40 cattle uh, on a, a pasture that should only have 10 and can only give the proper nutrition, nutrition to 10 cattle, and yet you have 40, four times the appropriate number, you know that those 40 are going to starve 
starve and not get the nutrition they need. So in many ways, hunting adjusts that population, and, um, and along with disease and predation, uh, hunting is a tool that uh, makes sure that the population that survives and breeds is a healthy population, and so it has a good result. I know there are a lot of people who are still squeamish about it. They think, well, it's still it's a blood sport. Hunting is a blood sport. But I think we all have to sit back and realize that unless we're vegetarians, it uh, doesn't matter if we sit down at our favorite restaurant, uh, fast food restaurant for a burger or a, or a chicken nugget. Something actually died uh, and was harvested to make that happen. They're not just uh, not something that just happens in natural occurrence. I think some people who uh, are always near those outlets for their information believe that God just packages up meats and barcodes it before it leaves heaven and it drops down to us into our very supermarkets. But that's not true. We're going to come back in a few minutes to talk with Chris Mitchell and take this theme forward with Nature Deficit Disorder. Stay with us and join us in the next segment. We'll return in a moment with host Steve Russell and Christian Living That Counts. Many Christians worry about how to share their faith. They even feel guilty about not sharing. Hi, this is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts on toginet.com. Christians sharing their faith feel awkward and bothersome sometimes. But my friend Bobby Bateman has a unique way to break the ice and open the door for a casual conversation. Join us soon for the interview with Bobby about his unique idea or learn more now at his website. It's personaltous.com. Once again, that website is itspersonaltous.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. We're back on Christian Living That Counts with your host, Steve Russell, and I've got Chris Mitchell on the line. Chris is the director of the Texas Youth Hunting Program. I spent the first segment introducing you to the idea of how hunting had been a solid conservation tool. Uh, One more statistic for those of you who still have some fear and trepidation for the first time in history of the numbers being kept last hunting season, there was only one fatality in the state of Texas. We've never achieved that goal before. So for those of you who are concerned about hunting being a safe outdoor sport, we can say that there are actually few that are safer. So without any further um, discussion on that note, I want to bring Chris on. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve, for having me. 
Well, you're welcome. I told the, the, the early audience in the first segment that you and I go back several years with Huntmaster programs, which is what you call your, your hunting leaders of the TYHP program and then in, in the hunter education. So um, tell, tell everybody a little bit about the background of TYHP and, and how long you've been directing it and, and just, just go from there and I'll, I'll ask you a few questions as things that we want to know statistically. Sure. Uh, well, the program was began uh, by some officers of the Texas Wildlife Association, which is our parent organization, uh, and the program began in 1996, and the first hunts began in 1997. And as you can imagine, it was pretty small back then. Uh, the director at that time, who's the gentleman that got us to the, the stage that we're at today, was Jerry Warden, and he stayed the director until 2014, and I assumed responsibilities as the director in 2014 after joining uh, in 2012. So last year was um, kind of your first full season? Yes. Very good. Okay. And I, I'm proud to say that we uh, we maintained, uh, actually did a few more hunts uh, um, my first year than we did last year, but... Uh, we wouldn't be where we're at today without the great work of Jerry Warden. Um, it was actually our second director, um, but he got the program to where it is today. Right. Um, and we did, a, we did 174 hunts uh, last year and um, took 1,549 kids on hunts all throughout the state. Now, you say kids. What, what's the age range? How does that work, Chris? Yeah, the, the young people that participate in our program have to be at least nine years old, uh, and they can hunt all the way through their 17th year. Uh, when they turn 18, uh, then they can't hunt with us anymore. So we can have them for um, about eight years. Right. And you and, you and I both know the nine year, the early age of nine, is because that's when they have to when they have to or, or can be certified for hunter education. So I know that's one of your requirements. That's correct. All of the participants in our, uh, participants in our program have to have completed hunter education. I like to tell people that we're really just an extension of hunter education. Hunter education is the classroom. Um, we actually have the, uh, the outdoor laboratory for them to uh, test their skills as new hunters. Right. And, and also, and uh, you can comment on this, I know that, for example, Nine-year-olds, say, up through 11 or 12, may be particularly suited for the adult supervision, which you can talk about as well. Uh, but they may be suited for that. But then uh, older ages uh, might be more suitable for hunts that require some, some additional maturity. So kind of comment to that a little bit, plus the adult supervision. Sure. Um, every one of our hunters comes with a parent or a guardian. Um, we view hunting as a, as a family activity. And of course, this is a selling point for our landowners who donate their property for us to do the hunt on. The fact that uh, the kids come with a parent, it's, it's not just the kids or, or a guardian. Um, and so uh, those, that father and son or mother and daughter uh, get to share that time together out in the field uh, hunting. And it's a great bonding time. And, and that's also a big selling point um, for our program well, with our with our parents. We have a lot of them that say, 
you know, I don't know when I spent four uninterrupted hours with my son or daughter. Uh, and, and our program offers that uh, for them. Yeah, most, and, most people can't do a Wii uh, for f- four hours in a row. So, so back to the electronic, uh, you know, deviation, get away from that a little bit. So not only is yeah, it four— Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's not, another great thing about our program. The, uh, you know, a lot of them are done on farms and ranches and around the state, and some of them don't have really good cell coverage. <laughs> so that's a great way to have the uh, uninterrupted time uh, with the parent and or the child. Yeah, so it's not just four hours. It's four really good hours where the focus on family can really come to play. Right. Yeah. And I I was alluding earlier, for example, uh, the earlier the younger kids might be very suitable for a fixed stand, say, to shoot turkey or deer. But maybe when you get up to uh, the more uh, the need for more maturity, such as uh, uh, upland game birds or migratory birds, where there's an additional factor of safety, sometimes those are limited by the landowner or uh, or the huntmaster to um, um, to those older ages, just simply for the additional safety and maturity. Right? That that's correct. For example, we have uh, several hunts that are spot and stock. They're on properties that either don't have blinds or we just don't use them. Um, and the the young people and their parents are are hunting in in a compartment. And uh, obviously, uh, sometimes just the physical requirements uh, of those type of hunts require that you limit that hunt to a to an age group that that can handle the physical rigors of it. In addition to the um, the maturity uh, for the safety acts aspects of the hunt, um, but we have plenty of hunts for for nine to. Uh, 11-year-olds to go on, and then, uh, you know, those few hunts that have uh, some age restrictions, um, you know, there's, they're really exciting hunts, you know, spot and stock. Uh, I'm happy to announce uh, that we will have our second pronghorn hunt coming up uh, in the second week in October. Uh, we haven't posted it to our website, so um, you can be on the lookout at uh, – www.tyhp.org, um, but we will be having our, our second uh, pronghorn hunt, and that is a, a spot and stock hunt up in the in the uh, northern panhandle of the state, a very challenging hunt, and that is one that will be limited to 12 years old and older. Right, right. Very good. And I, I know the huntable populations, uh, that, that's another testimony to something I covered earlier with the restoration of the wildlife due to the Pittman-Robertson money that's come in through uh, hunters and outdoorsmen of, uh, and shooters. Then um, that's that pronghorn is another story of success there. Um, Chris, go through a, a weekend for us, uh, kind of what, what is, what is that, that parent, guardian, and child, what do they experience? Sure. Uh, a typical hunt for us begins on, on a Friday uh, during the fall. So typically the, the young people are still in school. So they get out of school. They might get out of school a little bit early, uh, but they'll come to the ranch on a Friday evening around 5 or 6 p.m. Uh, the first thing that they'll do is register with us, um, maybe get themselves situated in their lodging accommodations. Now, that might be a tent or it might be four-star accommodations on a, on a very nice ranch, uh, but it, it runs the gamut. Uh, then they're going to go to a range, um, and the purpose of that is for the volunteers, the hunt masters that run the hunt, 
they get to observe that young person handling their firearm so that we can make an assessment that one, the firearm is operating uh, correctly, and most importantly, that the operator is operating correctly. Uh, so it's an, it's an opportunity for that hunt master to get to observe that, that young person handling that firearm to make sure that it's done safely. And then, of course, uh, to make sure that uh, optics and uh, firearms didn't get bumped in transit uh, and we won't have a, a, a missed opportunity uh, come Saturday morning. So Saturday morning um, uh, is the first hunt. Um, when they, uh, depending on the, the hunt times, which are established by the landowner and the hunt master and the regulations of the state, typically start around 5.30, 6 o'clock at the beginning uh, times, with sh- shooting times being from 7 to about 9.15. Uh, so at about 9.15 on a typical hunt, uh, the hunt will end. The hunter and the, the parent will, will, will come back to the, the camp, uh, have a process any animals that they may have harvested, and we will use that as an education opportunity as well. And then we provide them a robust uh, late breakfast, um, and then they do education in the afternoon, uh, typically centered around a skills trail, but any outdoor or wildlife management uh, education topic is good on a hunt. Um, Then they have lunch, also provided by the program, and they go out on a second hunt in the evening. Uh, the same process is uh, run in the evening. They come back from the hunt. If there's animals to process, we give that the priority, and we have a great meal. Uh, we'll typically do a, uh, a campfire within the limits of burn bands and whatnot and share all the hunt stories, and uh, then we put everyone to bed. Uh, they go on one more hunt uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we have breakfast. Uh, then the then the young people and the parents will write a thank you letter, um, and we do our closeout uh, process, cleaning up the ranch, leaving it better than we found it, gathering up all those thank you letters to put in a memory book for the landowner, and then we get the parent and the child on the road back home by about noon on Sunday. That's that's the typical hunt. And you you used the word robust in front of uh, the later breakfast, but. Uh, I think the the food is one of the elements because that you know how we always say the everything tastes better better outside, uh, and so you get a lot of those camp type meals and some of the kids that's their first exposure to that maybe some of the parents as well but those are usually a high point as well I know you have some really good cooks um, so that's that's pretty good stuff H- hang on to those thoughts we're going to come back here in, in just a minute um, I want you to um, uh, just as we close. Uh, tell them what the cost for a for a parent and child meals, lodging, everything. What does that cost for that Friday through Sunday noon? Okay, uh, the fee is one hundred and fifty dollars, and that covers the hunter and the parent. Um, covers the lodging, the meals, uh, the access to the ranch. Everything is is covered in that fee. And really, the only reason we have a fee at all is so that uh, people are committed to. Uh, attending if they say there are going to. Very good. All right, we're going to be back in just a minute with Chris Mitchell and some more questions. Thanks. We'll return in a moment with host Steve Russell and Christian Living That Counts. I want to tell you about the special underwriting sponsor of Christian Living That Counts. This is show host Steve Russell to introduce you to the Prefort family of Mount Pleasant, Texas. 
Prefort Manufacturing was founded by the late Marvin Prefort, a born inventor who moved his growing business to the heart of cattle country in Northeast Texas in 1962. Since then, Prefort Manufacturing has become the leader in the highest quality of farm, ranch, and rodeo equipment, employing over 800 people and shipping their products worldwide. Bill Prefort, Marvin's son, assumed the leadership of the company in 1988 after the unexpected passing of his father, Marvin. Today, under their dad's watchful eye, the third generation of Bill's sons, Eddie, Nate, and Travis are carrying on the family tradition and business, including the Christian faith that they quickly credit with much of their success and growth. I'm proud to call the Preferts friends and appreciate their making the internet radio broadcast of Christian living that counts possible. Learn more about this dedicated Christian family and their outstanding business at prefert.com. That's P-R-I-E-F-E-R-T.com. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. Okay, thanks for staying with us. We're back with Chris Mitchell from the Texas Youth Hunting Program talking about overcoming the nature deficit disorder that Richard Louve so well outlined in his book, The Last Child in the Woods. We're talking about how to get kids outdoors, how to get them involved in wildlife restoration, conservation, and education. And uh, we're talking with Chris because he's the director of the Texas Youth Hunting Program and has a lot of experience with it. Uh, we learned in the last segment that this is a parent, guardian, and child. Nobody, No child comes out to go hunting without a parent or guardian. And uh, then there's some additional people on hand who are the trained personnel, and we refer to them as the hunt masters. Chris, come on and tell us a little bit about uh, what it takes to be a hunt master, who's typical, and, and maybe even how somebody would become one if they wanted to. Sure. Uh, let me first mention that if you wanted to help out with the Texas Youth Hunting Program hunt, you don't have to be a hunt master in order to do that. However, uh, we do believe that the best way to learn the most about our program is to take hunt master training. And we offer, we try and offer a hunt master training for each section of the state, north, south, east, and west, uh, in the year. Uh, we typically try and do those in the April to uh, August time frame. We've already conducted four Huntmaster trainings this year. We have two more coming up, um, one in August in um, Laredo and one in Pearland um, also in August. However, 
if a group out there can get together eight or ten volunteers that would uh, that are interested in becoming hunt masters, um, I can put together training uh, for them, and I can even tailor that training uh, for groups that you know may have more knowledge of the outdoors or groups that uh, are very new to it. We can we can tailor those programs to meet the needs of the audience. I know that I've been through Huntmaster training twice and conducted a couple of hunts myself, but uh, what can a person expect for the Huntmaster training if they were to attend one of these workshops? Well, it, it, it follows the same routine as a hunt. It, it'll typically start on a Friday, um, and we'll run them through uh, the policies and procedures for the program, uh, talk to them about how to recruit uh, youth, how to recruit landowners, how to recruit volunteers. Uh, obviously, we spend a great deal of time on actually running a hunt, um, how you organ- organize your education for your hunt, because that is a very uh, important component of every hunt. Um, it's not just young people hunting. When they're not eating, sleeping, or hunting, we're teaching them something. Right. Uh, we also teach the uh, youth volunteer, the, the volunteers, um, how to organize their team, how to, um, find landowners, how, how to convince landowners that, uh, they might want to donate their property for a hunt. So when it's all over with, uh, a hunt master is not just a person that runs a hunt. They help the program, um, get all three components of the hunt, youth, landowners and and volunteers Uh, and they are our ambassadors uh, for the program let's go to that for a minute that's a good question and another opportunity for people to step in and be a great help talk a little bit about the advantages to the landowner and what a typical landowner uh, why they might want to volunteer sure Uh, well one of the greatest reasons that uh, anyone um, like to volunteer with our program usually occurs after they've run a hunt and that is just seeing the joy in a young person and their their parents eyes uh, when they get to you know participate sometimes for the first time in the outdoors Uh, but some of the other reasons that people participate in our program is that we're helping landowners achieve their wildlife management goals Um, many of our texas landowners um, have uh, managed land deer permits and we help achieve their harvest numbers because uh, sometimes those numbers are pretty large and those landowners, it becomes a real chore. Uh, well, we bring our young people in with our volunteers and help them uh, get those uh, excess mouths off of their range to help them uh, improve their the, the standing of their property and their habitat. Yeah. Um, Very good. Uh, you also brought up the concept of the team that, that uh, puts on a hunt. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the different uh, team players that it takes to put on a hunt. And, and, and you can also start out by talking about the size of the hunts. Uh, I know that you're, you're not wanting always to have uh, large numbers of people. You want manageable numbers to make sure everybody gets the proper attention. So what, what about the size of the hunts and, and what team members are involved? Yeah, the, the average size of the number of participants on a hunt is uh, between six and eight. We have a minimum number of four just to cover our costs. We do provide um, liability insurance for our landowners, um, and the fee 
that we do charge also goes towards the food and the liability insurance costs. Um, but the so you said the size of the hunt you said about six to eight on the average. And now talk yeah. look, talk about the number well, of team like for a for a hunt of six to eight people. How many team members would be involved? What what roles yeah, would they well, play? There's, there's there's going to be at least one. There's going to be one lead hunt master. There might be other hunt masters on the hunt, but there's only one lead hunt master, and that's the person that uh, you know does all the coordinating with the landowner and coordinates with the parents. But there's going to be a cook, uh, and there are going to be guides. Um, ideally. The parent and the child hunt together, and they're not, they don't have a guide. But if that parent is not an experienced hunter, um, then we will provide a guide so that we don't make a, an error uh, that the landowner uh, you know, might regret us, us making. But ideally, we would like that parent and that child to you know, be able to bond and share that time alone. But if not, we provide a guide so that we're taking the right animals and that um, obviously, safety is, is uh, foremost uh, in the decision to, uh, to incorporate a guide with that parent and that child. Um, so uh, the typical staff will be a lead hunt master, a cook, and however many guides are necessary based on the experience of the, of the parents or the guardians attending the hunt. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of people might listen to, to this um, broadcast and they'd say, well, we have absolutely no experience. We, this sounds exciting. Sounds like some experience we'd like to have as a family, but we wouldn't have a clue. What, how would you, what would you say to them? What information could they get? Well, obviously, the, the first step is to go get hunter education. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where your, obviously your education is going to begin. Uh, but then for the novice hunter um, and, and his uh, family, this is where we, this is our real strong point because our volunteers have many, many years of experience uh, and they're going to benefit from all of that experience when they come on one of our hunts. And of course, we're gonna, we use every opportunity as an education opportunity. If you've never field dressed a deer, we're going to show you how to do it. Um, if, if you've never quartered a, a, a hog and you're on a hog hunt, we're going to show you how to do that. Uh, so whatever species that we're pursuing on that hunt, we have the, the volunteers necessary to teach uh, the participants a lot of information about that particular species, not just how to hunt it, but what it eats, how it lives, and how we're going to use that resource and show respect for that resource uh, when the hunt is over. Very good. I, and you've, you've, you've hit a term uh, twice at least in the conversation that, that I really like. And, um, you know, we have a lot of shooting sports, uh, that are very popular right now. And, uh, archery has just grown by leaps and bounds. Um, and I'm sure there's some archery hunts, right? There are. Yeah. And, and so I, I know that there are all these shooting sports, but it's, it's different shoot a clay target or a paper target um, or uh, something like that as opposed to actually harvesting wild game animals and birds. And so um, uh, I think that that you brought up the idea of starting out with hunter education, but even even a person who shot targets all their life, maybe very good marksman, um, still 
um, there's a need to cross that bridge over to become a, a hunter. Um, and, and I like what you said, you know, it's sort of, uh, sort of like the continuing education of the hunter education program is to go on into the, uh, into the hunt itself, because that's what we lack. Uh, there are a whole lot of uh, support groups for shooting sports and so on, but not so many, uh, in taking, uh, people out and getting them outdoors and, and getting their, uh, experience out there where it's, it's, it's the, uh, nature in them. And, uh, so that's, that's a great thing. Um, I was going to ask you too about um, the the ages. We we talked about that briefly, uh, but go back to that. Is there any recommendation from experiences you've you've had that would you'd say a child is 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 too young or may not be ready for this? Anything anything out of all the the, the many kids served that you've seen? Well, we do offer the the uh, hunt to nine years nine years old is the starting uh, point for us. But most of our participants are in the, you know, they start around 11. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't know that that's the, the, the golden spot, you know, for the age. We've had plenty of nine-year-olds come out on hunts and be completely successful, but there's a lot of difference from one nine-year-old to, to another. Some, uh, you know, you know this, Steve, uh, being a longtime hunter education instructor, some nine-year-olds can handle all that information just fine, and some... Uh, they're just not ready yet for it. And, and we see the same thing in, in the Texas Youth Hunting Program. Uh, you know, it, it, it's really up to that child as to whether or not they're ready. But I will say that one uh, policy that we follow is that it is the, the young hunter's decision as to whether or not they decide to harvest one of the animals that we're pursuing. Uh, and if they decide not to, there is no judgment on them whatsoever. Uh, but what typically happens if someone decides not to shoot, they will come back to camp and they will observe someone who has harvested uh, an animal and they observe the adulation and the, uh, the interest that everybody else has for that young person to tell that story. And what typically happens is that one hunter that decided not to shoot in the morning comes back Saturday night with a, their own hunting story because they, they got to see the interest and the excitement that everybody had for that other hunter uh, who did harvest. Very so, good. But it is up, it's up to the young people to make that decision. Excellent, excellent. I want you to stay with us. We've got a couple of more questions for you. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll return in a moment with host Steve Russell and Christian Living That Counts. Hey, friends, this is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts. I want to introduce you to my friend David Taylor. He's celebrating his 35th anniversary as a financial advisor. David is a CPA and has recently written a book to answer the need of so many ladies who came to his office after the passing of their husbands. Often they knew nothing of their financial details or status. David's book is called The Comprehensive Widow's Survival Guide. Be listening for my interview with David soon and learn how you can get your copy of The Comprehensive Widow's Survival Guide. I am not the woman I used to be. I'm free with Minister Diane Jones. Monday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet. This is your chance, ladies, to hear stories of hope and healing from someone who's been there. Someone who has fought back from the horrors of incest. Minister Diane's innocence was stolen from her in the land of alcoholism and mental illness, which led to her being emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by her parents. Yet in spite of this trauma, she has gone on to become a successful wife, mother, registered nurse, and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not the woman I used to be. 
I'm Free is a straight-up show to enlighten you and to lighten your load. Do not let the weight of this world or the things that have happened to you control your life. For more on the show and Diane and her book, The Story of Me, email her directly from her show page here on Toginet. Then, join us for I'm Not the Woman I Used to Be. I'm Free with Minister Diane Jones. Monday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. Welcome back to Christian Living That Counts. This is Steve Russell with Chris Mitchell. We've been talking to Chris about the Texas Youth Hunting Program. He had just gotten into an area that I want him to expand on a little bit when he was talking about the enthusiasm generated among the young people um, who get to go on these uh, these outstanding, uh, just outstanding opportunities at many of the, the finest ranches in Texas um, and just all kinds of, of experiences that are just, just so outdoor rich. And, uh, Chris, I wanted you to, to, ex, to expound just a little bit more on that idea about, you know, obviously some kids will go out and they may take their first, um, their first harvest of, a, uh, of wildlife, and then some kids may not. They may come on this whole thing and not get to. Kind of talk about the level of disappointment, what the kid goes through if they're not successful in harvesting. Well, the most common uh, comment that we get from someone who, you know, did not harvest, and of course we emphasize that the harvest is done. Uh, the fact that you're spending out time, that time outside with your parent, uh, you know, getting to see a, a property that maybe you would never have the opportunity to have access to, the, the harvest is actually uh, a bonus. Uh, we have pretty high success rates, but yeah, from time to time, uh, the young people do not uh, get to harvest, but what they almost always say is that it didn't matter to them because they had such a great time meeting new friends, spending time outdoors, getting to have this opportunity just to view wildlife or just to see stars or to spend time around the campfire and uh, do things that you know they maybe have never done or didn't even know were possible uh, for them um, in, in, in uh, this area of, the, of outdoor activities. Yeah, that that's been my experience, and and uh, you know you you've led us right right into that uh, that where you get to share those experiences because uh, you you mentioned earlier that the culmination somewhat uh, of the event after you've been out there Friday and everybody's kind of bonded and they're they're feeling that sense of community and they've they've been out and hunted Saturday their their bellies are full and they're around that campfire. Uh, tell a little bit about what typically happens around that campfire. Yeah, it, it's a magic moment. Um, it's uh, we typically like to do it around a campfire uh, for a number of reasons. Um, we call it a reflection event. We go around and we ask each of the participants to tell us about their experience. Um, tell us what animals did they see. If they got to harvest, tell us that hunt story. Uh, we also ask the parents to tell us about the, the experience. And uh, I don't know, the anonymity of the fire, uh, the, the, the experience that they have uh, makes it a really meaningful moment. I've had any number of, of single moms or, or, or parents tell us a, a number of different things that, like I said, they, they don't know when was the last time they got to spend this much time with their child. Maybe they've got a number of kids and they just haven't spent time with this particular one. And so 
this opportunity gave them that time to, you know, bond and reconnect with that child. Right. Or uh, maybe they're a single mom uh, who has that young uh, boy or that young girl who's decided they wanted to hunt, and they don't know the first thing about it. And all these volunteers have come together to help them have this experience. And for some of it, can, it can be kind of emotional. Um, and uh, it, it, But it is a very special time. And we, we just go around the campfire and ask, uh, all the volunteers and all the kids and the parents to tell us uh, what what the what the uh, program has meant to them so far. We also take that opportunity to um, have them give us some feedback on how we can make the hunt better or make the program better. Um, but it's uh, it's a it's a pretty special time to sit out under the stars and enjoy the the fire and tell hunt stories. Yeah, if they've never heard those coyotes howl, howl out there. <laughs> That's, it's like, what is that? Uh, yeah. It's not the dog next or door. If they, look, <laughs> or if they look up and they, they ask, uh, you know, what is that? Uh, what appears to be the cloud in the sky? And you explain to them, well, you know, that's the Milky Way. Yeah. And, you know, they they find, you can see they get it. They they did heard it. They It was named that. They didn't have any idea why it was named that. And now they understand why. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a pretty special moment. Yeah, absolutely. Let me get a couple of details in. You've talked about a one-to-one parent, guardian, and child. Uh, what if there are two children? Can a husband uh, sponsor one kid and mom another? And so you get the yeah. whole family out. Does that work? Yep. A- absolutely. Like I said, if 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 a mom or dad isn't an experienced hunter, we'll send a guide with them. Mm-hmm. Um, if if an uncle wants to come and guide the other sibling. Uh, you know that's fine too. Our, our requirement is that a a uh, adult uh, is going to be with that child, and they're going to spend uh, all that time with their child. So when the child goes out on the skills trail or goes to the range, that parent's going to be uh, right there with them. About the only complaint we ever get from a parent is that you know they're tired when it's all over with because uh, <laughs> we've had a lot of events, and they kind I guess they kind of think that they're just going to lay back and, you know, sit around the camp or the tent or whatever. Nope, you're, you're going to do everything that your child does because uh, there's never going to be a moment when you're not with your child. Yeah. And you, but you'd always want that one-to-one, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, also, we hadn't even mentioned this, but there's some, I imagine uh, with, uh, with the smartphones out there and the cameras, there's an awful lot of uh, Kodak, Kodak moments going on out there too. Um, oh yeah, we strongly encourage that because, as I mentioned, those thank you letters that we we get the kids and the parents to write, we include any photos from the hunt and we give an album to the landowner to commemorate the event. And uh, you know, we have landowners that have been doing this for close to two decades, and and they uh, they covet uh, their landowner book because it's a little history of each one of the hunts. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a harvest record, and, and of course. Uh, these parents and these kids who have been given such a great gift, many of them recognize that and, and have the ability to put, put that into words. And I tell you what, those landowners really cherish those letters from my parents and the kids. Well, I'll tell you, for uh, Friday night through Sunday noon, food, lodging, and a phenomenal outdoor experience that helps overcome that nature deficit disorder, for the bonding that occurs between family members, uh, all this rolled up for 150 bucks, um, and I know you even uh, have some scholarships available as well. Um, you don't want this um, uh, 
program and, and a lot of organizations uh, will give scholarships uh, of the 150. But that's, that's just about the best bargain I can think of for the experience uh, and the richness of, of something that almost can't be equaled um, w- without the experience. So, uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Before you leave, one more time, give your, your website. It is www.tyhp.org, and that's the Texas Youth Hunting Program. And if anybody uh, wants to contact me, my contact information, uh, you click on that, you get my email address or Brian Jones' email address or our program coordinator, Barbara Scheid. Uh, you don't get a machine. Uh, we, we will respond to your questions. Well, it's been a pleasure not only interviewing you but working with you in several venues over over a couple of years, Chris, and I'm just uh, so pleased to get this out to the public, and we'll do everything we can to get the word out because, again, it's an unmatched experience. Thanks for joining us. We may have to have you back. Thank you, Steve. I'd be glad to do it. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. That was Chris Mitchell signing off with us from the Texas Youth Hunting Program. I hope you found this segment extremely valuable. And the way we'll know that is uh, if the, uh, we used to say the phone lines light up, but uh, what we'll say here is that the emails and the, and the hits on the website of uh, www.tyhp.org, uh, that you go and you look into this program, uh, I think you'll find it unequal and unmatched in anything. And it's, it's just uh, one of the things that those of us here in, in Texas um, with generous landowners and people who, who want to see kids get outdoors again and, and, and realize how important it is for them to realize the heritage of the land uh, and the wildlife that belongs to every American. And uh, this is just an, an, an unequal opportunity. And I hope you'll access it. And uh, some of you especially who didn't even know the program existed, didn't know the quality and the, and the opportunity out here uh, with 174 hunts, I assure you that all those that they conducted last year, I, I promise you not all those were full. And so there are plenty of slots available, and I would certainly encourage you to go out and do something uh, that you haven't done before for a new experience and maybe just a different part of Texas. I've always told people, you know, in Texas you can do about everything in the world you want to except one thing. Still had not figured out where to snow ski. Uh, but we sold that to New Mexico uh, 150 years ago or more. So we'll just go over there for that. But the rest of it's right here in Texas. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is something, uh, when we talk about Christian living that counts, um, and, and those of us who are living renewed lives in a broken world, some of the relationships that are broken are some in the family. Getting outdoors um, and getting uh, away uh, from the hustle and bustle and the electric outlets and the chargers and the video games and all those kinds of things can really make a difference in your family and hopefully heal some relationships or maybe just grow stronger, some of the ones that are already there. If so, then uh, this broadcast certainly is worthwhile. I'd also recommend Richard Lou's book to you, Last Child in the Woods, and I hope you'll pick that up and, and read the marvelous Um, account he gives of how important it is to get our kids back to nature. This is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts. Thanks for joining us this week, and we will see you again and hear hear your comments, and thanks for joining us. We'll we'll be back next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
Steve Russell returns next week at the same time, discussing how renewed lives can make a difference in a broken world. Join us again for Christian Living That Counts.